So let's just pray right now and trust God to speak to us again this morning. Heavenly Father, we once again, Lord, as we approach the reading and the proclamation of the Scriptures, we thank you, Lord, that uh, your word is living. We thank you, Lord, it's powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. And we thank you, Lord God, that our lives are being transformed as we submit to the teaching and the preaching of the word. We thank you, Lord, that we're instructed. We thank you, Lord, that strongholds are challenged and overcome by the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that we're filled with your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that we're becoming better people, stronger believers, more useful uh, in your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, last week we started a new series of messages entitled Revival and the Outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in many respects, it is a flow arm from the previous series of messages uh, speaking about the outpouring of the Spirit and about Pentecost and talking about the fact that Pentecost is not just a date on the calendar, but it is the experience where believers are filled with the Spirit. And uh, I believe that this is a now word for us. Um, and I trust that your anticipation is increasing because God wants to do something. All right. Uh, that we're not maintaining status quo. It's not same old, same old. God wants to do something new and God wants to do something fresh. And God is always looking for vessels to work through. God is always looking for willing people uh, to work in and to work through. So uh, I guess just to make a start here this morning uh, before I read the first passage of Scripture here. Uh, on the outline there, it says that we're in the latter reign of the outpouring of God's Spirit uh, is prophesied in Joel chapter 2. Uh, and this is well documented in the Scriptures. Uh, and of course, it all happened on the day of Pentecost. That was the beginning, if you like, that was the first uh, or the former reign. And we're now in the latter reign. According to God's prophetic time clock, uh, we're in the last days uh, just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's where we're at in, 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 in the whole timeline of things. And as promised, God is pouring out His Spirit upon all flesh. There is a worldwide outpouring of the Spirit taking place right now. And everybody that receives God, receives the Holy Spirit, and responds to Him appropriately will have personal revival. Everybody say personal revival. You know, it's been said that there's been corporate revival, citywide revival, sometimes nationwide revival, uh, but not everybody has experienced a personal revival. So you can be in the middle of a revival situation and, and not allow it to touch you, uh, just allow it to pass you by. We don't want to have a brush with revival. We want to experience revival. And so with that, I want to start reading from Matthew chapter 3, uh, first couple of verses, then on from verses 6 through to verse 12. And this is out of a, uh, what we call the Ben Campbell Johnson translation. And uh, it speaks here about John the Baptist in verse 1. He says, by his own witness in the desert of Judea, he announced the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He said to everyone who would listen, change your attitudes and your actions. Prepare yourself for an invasion of the spirit dimension, which is imminent. And indeed, it was imminent. And uh, we've got another spirit invasion imminent right now. There's fresh outpourings of the spirit taking place like again and again. Verse 6 says that many of those who listened to his testimony submitted themselves to his baptism and acknowledged the sinfulness of their attitude 
and actions. On one occasion, when the baptizer noticed a number of both the pious rule keepers and the religious aristocrats in his audience, he addressed them directly. You deceptive and cunning religious leaders, who has awakened you to the impending invasion of the Spirit? Who has warned you about God's coming? I talk about shooting straight. <laughs> okay, John the Baptist just like, you know, lining these guys up. He says, who has warned you? He says in verse 8, if you intend to participate in the imminent spiritual evasion, uh, invasion, demonstrate a change in your attitude and your actions. And friends, there's a key in this verse right now. If you want to participate in it, not just watch it from a distance or let it pass us by, but if you want to participate, we need to change our attitudes and our actions. Do not offer this realization uh, or rationaliz rationalization. We are the offspring of Abraham and need nothing more. I say to you, God can make sons out of stones if you so uh, if he so chooses, and need not depend upon the so-called descendants of Abraham. I forewarn you that the woodcutter is already swinging his axe at the very root of the trees. Every tree in this forest that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and burned. When you give evidence of a change in attitude and behavior, then I will baptize you with water. And John the Baptist, of course, was people baptizing uh, in water in the Jordan River. Typically, uh, it's, it was called John's baptism. It was a, a baptism unto repentance. That everybody that wanted to repent, they had a public, a public water baptism, uh, if you like. I mean, we don't practice that uh, baptism anymore today. Today, we have a believer's baptism. But anyway, it says, you guys, will, I will not baptize you until you demonstrate a change in attitudes and in actions. And let me tell you that that message needs to be preached all over again. There's sometimes people, uh, churches that are filled with people with a bad attitude, um, unteachable, um, think they've got it all. Uh, John the Baptist says, do not offer this rationalization saying that you're the sons of Abraham and we need nothing more. Sometimes people say we've got everything we need. The reality is we don't have everything we need. We need more of God. All right. We need more of his spirit. And John the Baptist himself said, he says, I must decrease and he's says, Jesus must increase. And why wouldn't that be a good prayer? And pray to God, say, God, I must decrease and you must increase in my life. Anyway, some of you are getting excited. Praise the Lord. He says, but he says, when you give a, a change uh, or rather evidence of a change in attitude and behavior, then I can baptize you with water. But my baptism is only a symbol. Yes, the one who is about to appear uh, is superior to me, and I do not feel worthy to un unlace his shoes. He has the true baptism of which mine is but a preparation. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and his baptism will ignite the depths of your being. And the question is, has the depth of your being been ignited yet? Have you experienced that baptism? And are you filled with the Spirit that there's a continual igniting of your innermost being going on? All right. It says, then one of those, uh, the one uh, of whom I speak, rather, he says he carries a separator with him, and with it he separates the wheat from the chaff. Uh, he will gather the wheat for storage, but he will burn up the chaff with blazing fire. And so... Um, the Bible tells us that John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus Christ. 
forerunners were people that used to run ahead of kings that used to travel in those days and as it were make sure that all the roads were prepared to make sure that everything was ready and to announce the coming of the king well king jesus is about to to travel he's about to come and so here's john the baptist and he's preaching a message to prepare the hearts of the people so that jesus christ could come uh and and there would be a readiness uh, in the population so to speak um and right there, John the Baptist is actually also announcing the invasion of the Spirit. He's speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> friends, the Holy Spirit is more important than what many people give him credit. Uh, it's, like, uh, it's like the church cannot do without the Holy Spirit. We cannot operate without the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, you know, the Holy Spirit has been shunted to the side a little bit because sometimes there's manifestations when the Holy Spirit takes, all, takes over. That some people get a bit uncomfortable to say, let's put that aside and let's just, you know, preach an intellectual gospel uh, and everything. But we don't need an intellectual gospel. We need the Bible gospel. And we need the real Holy Spirit. And we need to make way, we need to make room for the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do. Praise God. So there is a prophecy by John the Baptist about the invasion of the Spirit, uh, which, of course, we know uh, began when Jesus Christ was actually filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus himself prophesied about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I'm just going somewhere, so stay, stay connected in. We're just on a journey somewhere. All right. Here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And again, this is the Ben Campbell Johnson translation, which is a kind of a, um, a paraphrase, a modern translation. It says, Jesus began his ministry saying to all the people, change your attitude and your actions because an invasion of the Spirit is imminent. All right? An invasion of the Spirit is imminent. Why would a force, why would an army wants to invade? Well, it wants to occupy and it wants to control. And why would the Holy Spirit want to invade our lives? Well, he wants to live in us. And he wants to control our lives. That's what he wants to do. You see, if we control our own lives, it doesn't work out too well. But when the Holy Spirit controls our lives, things are working out well. All right. So as I said before, the invasion of the Spirit actually began uh, when Jesus Christ was baptized uh, in the Jordan River and when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That was, if you like, the kind of the, the catalyst uh, where things all began. Uh, and as Jesus traveled around, uh, began to, to operate by the power of the Holy Spirit and people's lives began to change. People repented. People uh, got healed. People got delivered. There was, there was the power of God in operation. And when the Holy Spirit has free reign in the community things begin to change friends let me tell you i'm utterly and totally convinced today that what we need more in this nation and around the world than anything else it's a fresh outpouring of the spirit of god people say we need to change the government we need this we need that we need the other we need more money what we really need is revival <laughs> that's what we really need what we really need is another outpouring of the spirit in fact i'm going to touch on that just a little bit later on uh, and uh, you know if there's one prayer that i've picked up in the last few years over and over and over it's a lord pour out your spirit as you promised that's what we need most right now we need a fresh outpouring of the spirit of god so here in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, it says, When all the people were baptized, it was baptized by John, it says, It came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There had never been an individual 
prior to this incident here that actually had been entirely filled with the Holy Spirit as Jesus was. The Holy Spirit was upon people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. He was upon the kings, the priests, the prophets, and a few selected individuals. But now uh, the Holy Spirit has been put out and Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. And in fact, it says here in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, full of and controlled by the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led, or led in or led by the Holy Spirit. How do I know if I'm full of the Holy Spirit? Well, when I'm controlled by the Holy Spirit, I'm full of the Holy Spirit. But I cannot claim to be full of the Holy Spirit if I control my own life, all right, if I'm in charge. And that's the whole aspect where the Holy Spirit wants to invade our lives afresh. He wants to occupy, He wants to control, He wants to lead. Um, he, wants to, he wants to use us for His glory in the last days before Jesus returns. And here in Luke chapter 16, in this kind of a journey from John the Baptist onto Jesus, and Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, and it says that when he was in Nazareth in Luke 4:16, uh, where he had been brought up, uh, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. One translation says, to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. Uh, and Bible scholars tell us, tell us that he was, in, 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 in so many words, he was actually announcing the year of Jubilee, which was an Old Testament concept that every seven years, slaves were allowed to go free. All debt was forgiven, and there was a trumpet blast that was made, and uh, the, the call was, every man returned to his possession. And slaves were freed, and people, there was kind of a leveling out uh, of prosperity prosperity within society, and it kind of gave a fresh start to everybody. People that through wrong decisions and unfortunate circumstances got themselves into slavery, got themselves into trouble, well, all of that was all canceled out. All debt was canceled. Wouldn't that be a great system? All debt canceled in Jesus' name and a fresh start. And so let me tell you, after the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, there was good news for the poor. Praise God. You know, God's got the poor on his heart like he has all people on his heart. And God wants to help the poor and he wants to help the rich and he wants to help everybody in between. All right. But there's good news to the poor. Um, in fact, what uh, poor nations need around the world is Christianity. That's what they really need. All right. Uh, that's what they need. And then secondly, there's healing for the brokenhearted. Um, that aspect of brokenhearted there, there is like a, when the Holy Spirit invades, there is, a, there is mental and emotional healing. And sometimes people say, oh, I need this, I need that, I need the other, I need, I need this. No, what we need more than anything else is a fresh invasion of the Holy Spirit where there is a healing of those things that need to be healed. And, you know, sometimes it, it, it was called inner healing, and there's aspects of inner healing that I wouldn't go along with, but God wants to bring inner healing and outer healing. 
God's got healing for the total man. When people get saved, they get healed in their spirit. Uh, and when they're invaded by the Holy Spirit afresh, they get healed in their emotions and in their mental capacity and in every other area as far as their soul is concerned. And then there's healing for the body as well. See, God is a holistic God. God doesn't just single one thing out and leave other things, uh, you know, leave other things out. But God wants to start with our spirit. What a tragedy it will be for somebody to get healed physically and it only touched their body and it doesn't touch their soul and it doesn't touch their spirit. The Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? I mean, praise God for healings and let's, you know, like sometimes in, the, in you know, healing, what they call healing meetings, healing crusades where, you know, lost people get saved and God basically wants to demonstrate his love to them. But if they don't respond to that love and get saved, it's what is the point? Uh, it's only the whole process hasn't been completed. God wants to capture people's hearts. God wants people to be saved. And God wants people to be in his family so that ultimately they can go to heaven. So number one, when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, there was good news for the poor. There was healing for the brokenhearted. There's liberty to the captives. And the language that is used in here, the Jews understood it. Uh, because it was the language that they used when the year of Jubilee was announced. Every seven years and then every 49 years, every 50th year was called what they called the year of Jubilee. There was like a leveling out in society and there was like, a, like a, uh, you know, the, like those that got richer and richer and others that got poorer and poorer, there was kind of a leveling out again. Uh, you know, sometimes people speak of, of social justice. But what will true, what will bring true social, um, um, I'm starting again. What will bring true social justice is a fresh revival. That's what that will bring. So liberty to the captives. Captives of those who are captive spiritually, captive to their sins. And those who were captive uh, physically that were literally slaves. And praise God, you know what? Uh, you know what abolished slavery? It was Christianity that abolished slavery in Western society. And you know, slavery is still alive and well in different parts around the world, particularly under Muslim regimes. It's horrible. Slavery is still going on to this day. And what a, what a tragedy that is. Uh, and so when Christianity comes and an outpouring of the Spirit takes place, captives are released. Recovery of sight to the blind. Uh, there is healing for blind people, uh, both spiritually as well as naturally. And then it speaks of liberty to those who are oppressed. Uh, the Bible calls sickness an oppression of the devil. And uh, when the Holy Spirit invades, there is healing. There is deliverance uh, from those who have got demonic bondages in their lives. And so there's kind of recovery. There's liberty. There is healing. There is provision. And finally, as we've said before, then the final line there speaks about the time of the Lord's favor. The year of the favor of the Lord. And how did all of that happen? A man by the name of, by the name of Jesus Christ got filled with the Holy Spirit and he brought a message of healing, a message of deliverance, a message of provision, good news to the poor, and a message of captives being set free. Christianity is the best thing that can ever happen to a nation. Christianity is the best thing that can happen to a city, to a community of people, the best thing that can happen to a family, or the best thing that can happen to an individual. <laughs> so whenever a community of people receive and respond to the outpouring of the Spirit, 
they can expect the same thing to happen in their lives and in their midst. The outpouring of the Spirit always, everybody say always. It always results in people getting saved, healed, delivered, restored. There's recovery, there's restoration, there is provision, there's answers for the poor. Uh, there is, uh, the, in, in fact, uh, this happens when we're talking about the invasion of the Spirit that happens on a personal level. It happens on a family level. It happens on a corporate level where there's a group of people. It happens on a citywide level. It, could, it happens on a nationwide level. It, it happens on a societal level. True revival brings massive societal changes with less crime and corruption and more peace and more prosperity and more social justice and more of all the good things that we want. There's safety, there's security where people can walk around even in the dark and not have to feel concerned that they're going to be mugged. There's no burglaries. <laughs> There's reports of revivals where judges were basically dismissed because there was no, no cases to be judged. But the police force was largely made redundant. Why? There was no crime. In fact, in the Welsh revival, and I'll get to talk about some of that when we get time, but in the Welsh revival, there was a, a, a whole police station with police officers that had nothing to do. So these guys were musicians. So they ended up going down to the local church and they became the worship team because there was meetings going on night after night after night and people getting saved and people repenting of their crime and no more burglaries, no more drunkenness, no more drug abuse. There was none of that anymore because it brought such massive societal changes. We can absolutely track the state of a nation in terms of its moral depravity and, uh, and, and, and then it's of its moral cleansing of it again based on the outpouring of the Spirit of God, the ups and the downs of a nation. And friend, as we look at our nation and the Western nations around the world, we're in line for another revival. <laughs> Praise God. We're in line. We need another outpouring of the Spirit of God. That's absolutely what we need. Praise God for everybody in society that tries to make a difference. And praise God for politicians, for scientists, for medical people. Praise God for anybody and everybody that does anything good. But without the Holy Spirit, it's a bit like banging your head against the wall. It doesn't achieve anything. You know, it's been said that... Uh, that on this whole area of good news to the poor, it's been said that we are spending mega dollars every day uh, through a social welfare system. In fact, I heard some staggering figures a number of years ago where they've compared the social welfare department or whatever they call that thing right now. And, you know, we've got Department of Conservation. Social welfare department spends in one day or in two days what Department of Conservation that are managing all the national parks and all these other things, what they're spending a whole year. There's just money being spent in all directions at an unbelievable rate. And yet we've got poor people that are becoming poorer. So praise God for every effort to help poor people, but ultimately only Christianity 
will help poor people. Only Christianity will level the, the, the situation and help people up and, uh, and bring people to a place where their needs are met and bring people to a place where, where, where people should be. God wants to lift people up and praise God for another outpouring of the Spirit of God. It's happening right now around the world. We are experiencing a measure of revival. In fact, we were just commenting the other day that the part of our, our, our vision is that, you know, we, every week that somebody gets added to the Lord and added, gets added to the Victory family. We've just taken note the other day that every week somebody gets born again in and through the life of this church. Every week, there's not a week that goes by. We don't always get somebody saved on a Sunday, though we will more and more. But we've got various outreaches, various things on the go. There's small groups. There's a hospital outreach. There's street outreach, there's different things. Every week somebody gets born again. Well, the Bible speaks of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Uh, Peter uh, quoted the scripture out of, out of uh, the book of Joel, and he finished off by saying that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ultimately, ultimately, revivals must translate into salvations. And when we've got salvations, we can say we have a measure of revival. Sometimes people think, I've got goosebumps. Well, praise God for goosebumps. Hallelujah for goosebumps. But you know, if all we get is goosebumps on the outside and it doesn't bump us on the inside and move us into a better life, then really we're just having a brush with revival, <laughs> having a brush with the Holy Spirit rather than, Lord, fill me and control my life. So what we need more than anything else is a massive outpouring of the Spirit of God. Last week I began to share some revival stories and I want to tell you a few more. Um, we talked about the former reign and the latter reign of the Spirit of God. We said that the day of Pentecost was the former reign and we're now in the latter reign and there have been seasons of revival along the way. We talked about the first great awakening. We talked about the second great awakening. This morning I want to just talk a little bit about the, what they call the general awakening which took place in 1830 onwards. Uh, last week I endeavored to mention a few names of uh, you know church historians uh, have recorded of different people who were used powerfully by God to to spark off revival, to carry revival, and we're like on the cutting edge uh, of, of this whole thing is concerned. But, you know, when you start, you know, like God uses multiple people, but many times it goes back to, to a few individuals, a group of people that God uses to pray in revival, and then a few people that God uses in order to spark off revival in a community, in a city, and in a, in a nation. And there's one man uh, who is well known as a revivalist, and his name is Charles Finney. Uh, Charles Finney was a Presbyterian minister, a, a theologian in many respects, uh, uh, but probably more so a revivalist. Uh, Charles Finney uh, had been a lawyer. He was quite a tall man. He apparently had piercing eyes, uh, <laughs> whatever that means. And, uh, and uh, he, he was an atheist. He was a confirmed atheist. And after sort of doing some self-study, uh, he became a lawyer. He was taken on in this law firm. Um, and he began to practice law, and he had incredible oratory skills. He was a, an, an amazing speaker, uh, and he had a very sharp mind. And with his lawyer mind, he was able to win cases, and he became quite well known in the city there. Um, and, uh, and, and he used to agitate and hassle Christians. 
and speak against Christianity and use his, uh, his natural bit, if you like, to sort of talk down Christians and to give them a hard time. Well, he had a massive conversion experience. And uh, the man was just completely turned around. Within a year, uh, he finished his law practice and uh, God began to use him uh, in preaching the gospel. Um, and uh, he basically he became a minister, as I said, within the uh, Presbyterian Church. They licensed him. And uh, being America over there, you do need to be licensed before you, you'll get open doors in terms of speaking anywhere. Um, and uh, so he began to preach. And soon revival began to happen. Um, Finney became quite well known because he was quite an imposing figure. And uh, he used his... Uh, his uh, argument skills, if you like, that he had developed, just having a sharp mind and being a lawyer, and he used all of that to present the gospel in such a convincing way uh, that people just uh, ran out of arguments and in the end committed their life to Christ. Um, Of course, uh, it's been said that uh, not only did God use Charles Finney to spark off revival in that particular part of the United States, but there was a man by the name of uh, Daniel Nash. Uh, they called him Father Nash. Father Nash was a, uh, a minister uh, who began to travel with uh, Finney uh, and in many instances traveled ahead of Finney and became his personal intercessor. So he kind of almost like quit his own ministry to become personal intercessor to, uh, uh, to Finney, uh, who would go... And uh, he would arrange some meetings up ahead of himself. Uh, preparation was made. And Father Nash would quietly slip into town, rent himself a room somewhere. Sometimes another fellow was with him by the name of Clary. So there was Father Nash and Clary. And sometimes they would kind of engage one or two other intercessors. And they would pray for weeks before the meetings began. They would pray during the, the meetings. And then they would move on again and get ahead of uh, Father Nash before he would travel to the next environment. It's been said that uh, it's been said that that Finnish preaching was awesome, but ultimately it was the intercession that made the difference. Friends, we got awesome preaching preaching today. I mean, we got I mean, we got some phenomenal preachers preaching a, cr- a great gospel, but we're not having the results that we ought to be having because uh, preachers are not many times undergirded by prayer as they need to be in order that the words that they speak don't just fall to the ground, but pierce the hearts and the lives of people and bring them to a place of repentance. Revival was accompanied uh, when when, uh, Finney preached. The people came under such conviction that many times they would run down the front and throw themselves on the floor and commit their life to Christ before the preaching was even finished. Uh, There was such conviction that gripped people's hearts. In fact, I'm sort of bouncing around a bit, but Finney uh, was actually, uh, is called the the kind of the father of of the modern evangelist movement where, where he kind of invented the concept of an altar call. The people were drawn to the front, um, but he kind of aided things by giving invitations for people that felt that they, they needed to get saved to come down the front, and that hadn't been done before. Um, and he was criticized for it, but he says it worked well because, uh, because it kind of helped others to come forward uh, that were kind of uh, hanging in the balance and helped them to get saved as well. They would have what they called an inquiry room. That separate to the meeting room, they had an inquiry room and they would get people in there and work with them and make sure that they were thoroughly converted before they would let them go again. That there was no half-hearted conversion or no sort of emotional uh, response to something, but there was a true, heartfelt, born-again experience. 
and, uh, and Charles Finney uh, had another concept uh, of what he called the anxiety uh, or the anxious seat. <laughs> That's a kind of interesting term, what they called the, the, the anxious seat. Uh, what was happening as he preached, there was such power in his preaching that people started to skirmish in their seats and people felt all started fidgeting and get all uncomfortable and some would start crying and some would start wailing and he found it rather distracting. So, uh, and, and of course he said that it distracted people around them. So what he did was he arranged for some seats in the front to be vacated and left empty. And before the meeting started or when the meeting started, he said, look, if any of you start to feel uncomfortable and you're under the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than distracting everybody, you come down the front and sit right there and that'll let us know that you want to get your life right with God. And so as he began to preach, there was such conviction that fell on the masses of people that he addressed. And there was like... <laughs> People getting all uncomfortable and people coming out of the power of the Holy Spirit and, uh, and so forth. And they would make their way down the front. And then finally, when he gave the altar call, they were like, just like, just absolutely uh, quick to get saved. Um, in many respects, um, Charles Finney became a model of revivalists for generations to come. Uh, preachers still use his sermons today. And he preached us messages of repentance. Uh, prior to that, in churches, they will preach an intellectual gospel. And they will preach extreme Calvinism, which basically meant that, uh, that uh, if people are destined to be saved, they're going to get saved no, no matter what you do. And if people are destined to go to hell, they're going to go get you hell no matter what you do. Well, Finney turned this whole thing upside down, and he preached personal responsibility. I mean, praise God for personal responsibility. The Bible says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. And you know that whole uh, false uh, theology of some people destined to go to hell and some uh, to, to heaven and other people destined to go to hell, it's, it's, it's called extreme Calvinism, which he completely turned upside down and he preached personal responsibility. Um, and you know, like when people just, there's just like an intellectual gospel being preached. Uh, uh, Finney was used, to, was used to revival preaching in the church that he was a part of. There was like, there was preaching going on that was like direct. And, uh, and of course, he was a great orator and he used his skills to preach the gospel uh, and being undergirded by the prayers of Father Nash and others. There was incredible results uh, and as he traveled around. Uh, he went to one uh, uh, town small city upstate uh, from New York uh, called uh, Rochester. And he was there for six months. Uh, in his journals, he talked about uh, that uh, he had invitations from other places and some of the other places looked better. But somehow, even though he had initially turned that invitation down, God began to speak to him. And he says, uh, if I didn't need you up there, I wouldn't have him call you to go up there. So there was strife in between the churches. There was strife in between the, the, the ministers and the congregation. There was just a disaster there. Well, Finney went up there and he began to preach the gospel. And he preached the gospel for six months. Uh, and within a few weeks of this whole thing of the Spirit of God invading, there was restitution made. There was kind of a, people made up with one another. And all the quarreling, all the fighting was put aside. There was repentance. There was heartfelt repentance. But people had been in strife and been critical of one another. They repented of all of that. And there was incredible unity that came into congregations and amongst different congregations of different churches. And uh, in a small town of approximately, in fact, under 10,000 
under 10,000 people over a period of six months. There were 1,700 new members taken into the churches there into membership. And it's been said that within a few months, every lawyer, every doctor, and every businessman without fail in that particular city was saved. Apparently, Rochester was a place that was quite a trendy place. A lot of doctors and lawyers lived there. Um, and because he had been a, a lawyer himself, they came to his meetings, and he says, in fact, it started off with one, one uh, uh, doctor's wife getting saved, and uh, she began to promote the meetings amongst uh, her peers and everything, and they started to come in the droves, he said. And, uh, and, and he says, they were amongst the first to come down to the anxious seat, he says, during his preaching. And in the end, when he gave the altar call, came forward, and there was just revival in the place. And what happened was that Charles Finney was, if you like, the catalyst to spark off revival in that particular setting, but then uh, reports of revival happening spilled into other places, and there would have been about 1,500 um, 1500 towns and villages around that particular area uh, where revival began to take place as well under other ministries there. And it's been said that within one year, 100,000 people had been converted and added to the churches. One year, 100,000 salvations. We need revival. We can't have people going to hell. We, we just can't have it. We've got to do something about it. Praise God. So, um, I say all of that to say this, that uh, we don't need an intellectual gospel. It's not what we need. We need the Bible gospel being preached. We don't need a psychological gospel. We need a biblical gospel. That's what we need. You know, the depravity of the Western nations around the world. In fact, a number of years ago, there was a, an evangelist slash prophet that came to New Zealand. And, uh, and as he traveled by plane, and just before he arrived into New Zealand, God showed him the map of New Zealand uh, from north to south as it runs. And uh, there was a word written over it, and the word was fornication. And, uh, you know, we talk about the moral depravity of nations that ultimately only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brings people again to a place where they surrender their lives to Jesus and begin to live a lifestyle that is uh, kind of, uh, kind of uh, as the Lord describes us to live. There is sometimes one other thing that is true about every revivalist. None of them were politically correct. That whole politically correct thing that we've had in this nation and in Western nations around the world, where you can't say this and you can't say that, is all part of the enemy's plan to keep people locked into lifestyles that are inconsistent with Christian living. Um, and these revivalists, they kind of shot from the hip and <laughs> without having to kind of make excuses for the gospel that they preached but because there was incredible undergirding of prayer going on, where these words that these men and these women preached, it pierced the hearts of people and the most hardened of sinners. And one of those was Charles Finney himself. He was just a hardened man. It was said that, uh, that you know, when they had churches back then already, and they thought, oh, Finney, a guy like that would never get saved. He's a complete atheist. Well, look what God had done. Like God turned that man's life right around and began to give him uh, an anointing to preach the gospel. Reminds me a little bit of uh, Paul the Apostle, who was also a lawyer. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee. They were lawyers. They were experts in the law. And uh, God 
got that man saved. And then he used his knowledge and his wit and his understanding and his revelation to preach the gospel, to spark off revival wherever he went. Let me, uh, let me say it again. What, what we need more today uh, than anything else is another fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God. I invite you to join us in praying and asking God for more of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. But, you know, here's a thought. Finney, after all the preaching uh, that had gone on, in fact, some of his subsequent uh, uh, followers there that preached revival um, and got people saved, and then in later revivals they were actually baptized with the Holy Spirit, that some of them kind of knew that the baptism with the Holy Spirit was absolutely a truth that God was restoring to the church and was almost like seen like the ultimate. But some of these revivalists, uh, uh, including uh, uh, William Seymour in the Azusa Street Revival, he began to ask questions. Says, Why is it that these people are filled with the Spirit and they actually speak in tongues, but their lifestyle doesn't show a level of holiness which would be called for for Christians. So, so sometimes people think speaking in tongues is the ultimate. It's a bit like John the Baptist. He says, don't use this rationalization to say that you are children of Abraham and you need nothing more. And sometimes people say, I'm spirit-filled. What else would I need? Well, just because somebody speaks in tongues doesn't mean that they're filled with the Spirit and live a sanctified life where they've laid down the issues of the flesh and laid down the sin and every weight that so easily besets. Praise God. I can see that some of you get more and more excited as I'm preaching. Praise God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let me talk to you uh, just in terms of just a little bit of a history lesson, church history lesson. The 1904 revival was kind of the next, the next uh, kind of bracket uh, of the outpouring of the Spirit that began um, in around 1900. They talk about 1904. Uh, it had its beginnings a few years earlier on, and it's still going on today. Um, of course, today we are talking about, uh, you know, 19, uh, 1904, then we talk about the 2004, and we could talk about the 2015 outpouring. There's outpourings of the Spirit of God happening around the world right now. There is m a massive Christian movement going on in uh, Indonesia, the most populous Muslim nation on the face of the earth. There's more and more Christians uh, more and more people getting born again under very, very difficult situations. China, there, the underground church in China is just powering on. It's just phenomenal stuff going on. And in different parts around the world, uh, uh, and there's people that are studying this whole thing, that are observing this whole thing, that are kind of recording this whole thing. And let me tell you again that sometimes we can be tempted to just think and look around our immediate scenario and say, well, you know, we're not really seeing what we would like to see. And you know what? You're exactly right. But you know what? There is a readiness in areas where the Spirit of God is poured out that is yet to be developed in the hearts and lives of Western Christians where we turn up our expectation and where we don't say, well, I'm born again and I'm speaking in tongues. What else would I need? Where there is like an emptying of ourselves before God and we say, God, we need more of you. That, as the Bible says, that Jesus is building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I was talking to a pastor friend of ours. Um, in fact, he says, we work incredibly hard but not as much results as what we would like to see. And the question begs to be asked is, why aren't we seeing more? We need more prayer. We need the, the ground to be plowed with prayer. 
and we need to allow for more direct preaching. Let's not ask for politically correct preaching. Politically correct preaching is right from the pit of hell to keep people where they are, to just soothe people and lull them into a state of spiritual sleep. Finnish's message was one of repentance. And what had happened was that uh, the church had gotten into kind of an intellectual gospel. Uh, there were people there that were unsaved and that had gotten themselves into leadership in churches. And there were other people there that were born again all right, but they got themselves into a backslidden state. And Finney came along and he began to preach repentance in the church. People say, well, no, repentance has to be preached outside the church to the sinners. No, the Bible says that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Praise the Lord. There's a quote here from a, a publication called The Ten Greatest Revivals Ever. And I'm trying to get to the end of this thing. It's like we always run out of time. But it says here, there was a quote here from Edwin Orr, who is probably the foremost uh, historian, church historian where revival is concerned. He says, a blaze of evening glory at the end of the great century. Uh, that's how the 2004 revival had been described by church historian J. Edwin Orr, and for good reason. By some estimates, more than five million people were won to Christ within two years. Um, five million people, not immediately in that same locality, but as revival began to spread. And it's been said that the 2004 revival, when it started and sparked off other revivals, and is still going on today, it was the greatest of all revivals by far, and most certainly outdid the revival that first happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter and John and these early apostles experienced the outpouring of the Spirit of God, which was the former reign. But we're now in the latter reign, and it began around about this time. And of course, there could be some argument back and forth in regards to when the latter reign really uh, happened and when the revival really started and, and, and when it really ended. But there's some generalities here. They talk about 2004. Uh, sorry, in uh, 1904. So, revival is always preceded by extraordinary prayer. Everybody say extraordinary prayer. You know, of course Christians pray, but when extraordinary prayer begins to be made and offered up to God, but people go out of their way to pray more and to pray more earnestly, God will respond to those prayers. As the 19th century came to a close, it says two evangelical ministries, the Bible Moody, uh, the Moody Bible Institute in America and the Keswick Convention in England called their two nations to pray for revival. So what had happened was moral depravity had set in again. And people were slipping away into moral depravity, into lifestyles that were completely inconsistent with Christian living. Uh, there was crime, there was drunkenness, there was... Uh, family violence, uh, there was stuff going on that these people say we need another revival because they recognized that what nations need most is not more money or a change of government. What nations need most is another outpouring of the Spirit of God that brings about ultimately societal changes. Uh, the outpouring of the Spirit of God, it begins in the locality within the local church, many times out of a prayer meeting. And then the church is revived, and then it spills on out into the community, and countless lives are changed as a result of it. 
And when that changed and filters through into society, into the business world, into the corporate world, into the political world, into the education world, and into the various spheres of influence that exist out there in the world, that's when things really begin to happen. It says the large prayer movement organized by these ministries was matched by an even larger, apparently unconnected movement of prayer worldwide. On mission fields as far away as India, the Far East, Africa, and Latin America, missionaries and national churches began to pray for revival uh, on the mission field. Many had never experienced revival for themselves. They, they prayed that God would do for them what they'd read about in the stories of history's great revivals. They said, we want that. That's what we want. And I guess it's a, it's a kind of a, a record of what began to happen. Uh, they reckon that that revival, the 1904 revival, began in an unusual place. Um, and in fact, it began in a number of places. But here uh, it happened during the Boer War in South Africa, where the British and the Afrikaans were fighting one another, and the British ended up winning, and they took a lot of the Afrikaans people, uh, prisoners of war, and shipped them off uh, to uh, former British colonies, or colon uh, British colonies at that time, which was Bermuda and Ceylon, which is present-day uh, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, and had prisoner of war camps there. And revival broke out in the prisoner of war camps. And it says here that, uh, that uh, in fact, uh, let me just back up a little bit here. This revival, it says, was characterized by extraordinary prayer, by faithful preaching, conviction of sin, confession, and repentance with lasting conversions and hundreds of enlistments for missionary service. With the return of the prisoners to their homeland, revival swept through South Africa as well, which was in the grip of an economic depression. So a prisoner of war camp, these guys were locked up, had nothing else to do but to pray. And they began to pray, they began to organize prayer meetings, they preached. And these guys got thoroughly revived, and as they were then returned to their home nation, they carried revival in there, and everything began uh, to pour forth from there. There was a revival in Japan, and again, 1900 uh, onwards there, it says the Japanese awakening began in 1900 as part of a decade-long intensive evangelistic campaign. Campaign organizers had called for the evangelical church to pray as preparation for the evangelistic effort. This prayer resulted in revival in Japanese cities. The total membership of the churches almost doubled within a decade. God put out his spirit, and once again, there was incredible repentance. There was incredible change that came into the lives of the churches. And with it came uh, just a great passion to get lost people saved. And as a result of that, uh, within 10 years, the church in size doubled. Isn't that what we want in our nation? That's absolutely what we want in our nation. Uh, in, um, in Australia and in New Zealand, um, there were two evangelists, American evangelists, by the name of Tory and Charles Alexander. They were surprised to find a widespread prayer movement during their highly successful campaign in Australia and New Zealand in 1901. The campaign produced more converts than ever before experienced by the churches of that region. Do you know what in New Zealand, the Brethren Church was on the cutting edge of revival uh, and in fact, I've said this before, but you travel around 
uh, New Zealand, you go into any small town, you will always find a gospel chapel uh, in virtually every place anywhere in New Zealand. Well, gospel chapel is the meeting places of the brethren churches in that place. They call them gospel chapels. And uh, they were like right on the cutting edge. So you sometimes, God, uh, you know, when we look back today, you know, God uses whoever is available. And God's not impressed or, or, or not impressed or not impressed or impressed with, with anything as far as names are concerned or this or that. God's just looking for willing vessels. God's just looking for people whose hearts are open towards him that he can work in and work through. How do we know that God's got to work in us first before he can work through us? All right. There was a revival that happened in Korea that so shook the nation and it hasn't finished yet. They reckon now that there's more than a third of Korea, and South Korea this is now, because of course Korea was uh, divided into North Korea and South Korea. There was a revival going on in, uh, in Nompang, up in, uh, in the capital of North Korea, uh, and it spilled right across Korea. Um, and, uh, and of course, some of that got kind of interrupted with, uh, with the Korean War and the, you know, the rise of communism over there. But Korea is now on the leading edge, on the cutting edge, as far as revival is concerned around the world. The Korean church are like a model church of prayer and of aggressiveness in the area of evangelism and just absolutely, absolutely going for it. And of course, one of the modern day uh, heroes of uh, the Korean church is a man by the name of uh, Dr. Paul Yonggi-cho. Uh, he renamed himself uh, David Yonggi-cho. He's got about a million members uh, in his church today. In fact, he's largely retired from active, active leadership of the church, and uh, he's, uh, he's an older man today. But a number of years ago, he came to New Zealand, and Vanessa and I had the privilege of being in the meetings uh, in Auckland there. And you know, the message that he brought into New Zealand was a message of repentance. Uh, in fact, a friend of mine took those messages that uh, David Yongicho had preached, and uh, he kind of analyzed them and summarized them then he went to see the head of the churches that had brought uh, David Yonge-Cho out at the time. And he said, uh, look, he says, uh, I was in meetings here in this church back in the early 90s or whenever it was when Yonge-Cho came to New Zealand. He preached a series of messages, and this is the summary of the messages that he preached. He talked about repentance from fornication, repentance from various other things. And he, he said to this man, he says, what was ever done about this? It's like, was there ever any outworking? Was there ever any concerted effort to say, look, we've just had one of the greatest generals of the Christian church in our nation. And he brought a series of messages. And the main thrust of his message was repentance. What was ever done about it? And the man said, look, to be perfectly honest, he says, nothing was ever done about it of any concerted effort. So anyway... Let's be excited about the Korean church. <laughs> Let's be excited what's happening over there. There's like multiple things going on. Uh, Korea at that time was largely an illiterate nation where by and large they were illiterate. In fact, uh, Yong Cho says, he says, we, we were so poor, he says that we cooked up dirt with water and we ate dirt, he says, we were so poor. But God's turned that nation around. And for a stretch of time, uh, Korea was the model of all Asian nations in terms of economic prosperity. 
and it was ultimately the preaching of the gospel and revival that lifted these people out from where they were to uh, where they are today. And it's been said that before missionaries and churches would accept people into membership, they had to learn to read the Bible. And so it turned out that in an illiteral nation, illiteral by and large, that the Christians were the ones that were literal and were able to read and write. And that made them the leaders of society. They became the heads of you know, in politics and society and the medical fields and the universities and in everything else. And so it's just sometimes people can't always see the outworking of certain requirements that the church places on people. You say, why do we have to do this? But God's got a plan. God's trying to take us somewhere. And God thinks intergenerationally. God thinks further than where most of us are thinking. So yeah, so just phenomenal. And the, uh, the revival in Korea when it broke out, it was marked by incredible repentance. And in one meeting it's been said that uh, the speaker that came in, uh, British missionary uh, to China, he was invited to come into Korea to hold a series of meetings. And there was already disarray there. Some of them didn't want him there. And anyway, he stayed and he began to preach. And he says, during the course of uh, the series of meetings there, he says the elders, there was an elder in the church who came to him uh, in his accommodation place and began to repent of some misappropriation of church money, uh, where he had stolen money uh, and everything else. The man began to repent and he began to make restitution. And... Uh, then another elder got up and he confessed to adultery and he repented and he asked everybody to forgive him. And then another one got up and he repented of various other things and in the end the pastor got up. And the whole lot resigned in one single meeting. They said, we are not worthy to stand in this office of leadership because our lives are not right. We've got this going on, we've got that going on. This is all public confessions. So they were all like, Repenting and all laid down so is the church without the pastor, without the elders, with no leadership in place. And before the meeting was out, uh, the people in the congregation reinstated these guys back into leadership and there was just a massive revival that began to break out uh, in that particular environment there and that revival is still going on today. Friends, revival can't be had without prayer and without repentance. Let me read to you as we pre prepare to close uh, what they call the nine faces or the nine facets of revival. So it basically means that revival uh, displays uh, or revivals display essential features is reflected in God's presence. You know, out of God's presence comes different aspects of what is then visible in revival. Because when the presence of God, uh, it's been said that as, they, uh, as people traveled towards revival, and they asked the train conductor and said, look, how, how are we going to know? Because they said, we just want a train ticket to take us to revival. Because the, there were more generalities than specifics given. And the train conductor says, oh, he says, you'll feel it. He says, when you get into that region, you'll feel it. And that's the time to get off the train, and then you just go towards where you feel the presence of God. The presence of God so gripped these communities that people were so under the grip of the Holy Spirit and the manifest presence of God, that sin wasn't able to stand. The people were not able to kind of carry on in the arrogance and the, in the pride that they had displayed before God and totally and utterly repented. Anyway, here we go, the nine faces of revival. Number one, the prayer revival 
displays considerable efforts in intercession and other forms of prayer. But it always begins with prayer. Number two, the repentance revival emphasizes a moral cleansing of individual lives and of society as a whole. So prayer, number one. Number two, repentance. Number three, evangelism. The evangelism revival focuses on winning lost souls for Christ. Then number four, the worship revival centers on magnifying God. I'm always having a sense that unless a Christian knows how to, or has learned how to worship God fully and to surrender to God in worship, something blocking things somewhere. Worship is the most natural outworking if we are thoroughly saved. Then number five, the deeper life. The deeper life revival emphasizes the experience of God's indwelling. That when we're not just looking for the goosebumps, but we're saying God is on the inside of me. And he's leading me to live a life of holiness and a life of dedication to the purposes of God. And that, the, that God wants me to be a better husband. God wants me to be a better wife. He wants me to be a better employer, a better employee. And I can't be that because... God is on the inside of me. The number six, the spiritual warfare revival. It devotes its energies in battling Satan and demon spirits. But people engage in, in spiritual warfare and in, and in uh, travail of prayer for lost souls and wrestle with devils to let the people go. The number seven, the Holy Spirit revival is characterized by extensive manifestations of the Spirit. So we're talking about the gifts of the Spirit in operation where there's just phenomenal healings taking place. There's wonderful things taking place. But you know what? Not every revival had that. Uh, people were gripped by the presence of God without ever seeing a miracle and still repented and still lived a lifestyle that is holy. Sometimes people say, if I see a miracle, I'll believe it. But friends, praise God for miracles. Let's allow the Spirit of God to work in our lives in a fresh way uh, that does not depend on us seeing things with our physical eyes, but where we respond to the prevailing presence of the presence of God. Then number eight, the reconciliation revival leads to removal of barriers of racial and or leads to um, the removal of barriers to racial and ethnic harmony. When people get racism out of their hearts, and their clickiness of only mixing with their own kind or their own people, so to speak. But people recognize that in the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor, nor female. But we're all one in Christ Jesus. And then finally, the liberation revival focuses on gaining freedom from corporate and personal bondage to sin. You know, we talk about the sins of individuals. We could talk about the sins of the corporates. We could talk about the sins of the political establishment. And all of that gets fixed in revival. But it's got to start with a personal revival in each and every one of our hearts. Let's just bow our heads and just allow the Spirit of God to move in our lives afresh. And to lead us where He wants us to go. Let's not do what... Uh, the Jews did where they said, we are sons of Abraham and we need nothing more. And John the Baptist challenged them. He says, an invasion of the Spirit is imminent. 
He says, show fruits of repentance. That you've laid down the issues of the flesh and the judging of one another and the gossips and the different things that uh, get in the way of people experience a full-blown personal revival in their own lives. Hallelujah. 